coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are. You're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. We live in very dangerous times these days with terror threats and acts showing no signs of coming to an end anytime soon. One would think that with society having developed and progressed, that there would be increased tolerance and acceptance in the world we live in. But it seems progress has only increased the level of fear and violence that we face in the world today. Technology has been one of those factors in our progress of civilization, but it also seems to have become a leading factor in promoting hatred, violence, and terrorism around the world. To discuss this, my guest today is Rabbi Cooper, who is the Associate Dean of the Simon Wiesenthal Center and is one of the world's leading experts in the analysis of cyberspace extremism. Welcome to the show, Rabbi. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be with you. Well, sir, you're the Associate Dean of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. What is it and what do they do? Uh, The Simon Wiesenthal Center is a uh, Jewish human rights organization named initially in honor and now memory of Simon Wiesenthal, who Mm -hmm. was first a victim of the Nazis in World War II, lost 89 members of his family, spent half of his life, the rest of his life, in pursuit of justice, mm-hmm. of bringing the Nazi war criminals to justice. And, of course, the issue of crimes against humanity, were not just against Jews, and he really became an international symbol, uh, the pursuit of justice, and uh, we're very honored to carry his name. So while in the early years there was certainly a, an emphasis on Nazi war criminals, um, he always told us from the beginning that he was as concerned about the future mm-hmm. when uh, the the threat may come from someone who's not wearing a swastika, may not have a funny little mustache, and whose main target may not even be the Jews. And what Mr. Wiesenthal said when he was asked on campuses, you know, could these things happen again? He said, anytime you have a crisis, mm-hmm. hate, and technology, you have the ingredients for... Um, you know, mass crimes to take place. And uh, he passed away before the Internet even became a factor. So uh, we're more trying to follow in his footsteps. And today the the front line um, the, in the battlefield, uh, the marketplace of ideas, but also in the battlefield against extremism is on the Internet. So he knew about the power of technology even before the Internet came out. It's quite amazing because he said that it, if uh, in the Middle Ages you'd had uh, governments as well organized as uh, Nazi Germany was and was already using, deploying uh, this new thing called the modern propaganda, uh, he said if you just were able to add in um, as an organizing factor uh, technology, then uh, he said you couldn't go back to the Middle Ages, to the Crusades, to the Inquisition, and no minority, no religious minority would have been safe uh, anywhere. So it's kind of built into the human condition that, uh, you know, people have freedom of choice to do good or, unfortunately, to choose to do evil. And uh, his other very important statement, which I think about every day, is that freedom is not a gift from heaven. It has to be earned every day. Well, freedom is not free. Freedom has never been free and is not free. Now, every year, the Simon Wiesenthal Center published the annual Digital Terror and Hate Report. What's the purpose of that report? Well, for for the last 20 years, we've been looking at this wonderful and ever-evolving technology. This has been a 20-year-old report? It's a 20-year effort 
the first hate site goes back to 1995, mm-hmm. and uh, Stormfront.org, it's uh, still around. And um, we saw that many of the extremists here in the U.S. and increasingly abroad used uh, the new technology and, of course, our uh, First Amendment concepts. Uh, they saw the potential to bring their message of hate, whether it was the KKK or neo-Nazis, where they were on the margins of society, and here was this great new technology where you could market your ideas unfettered and target the audience you wanted to reach. And so it went from one hate site back in uh, 1995, and our uh, institution, which is, uh, you know, doesn't use digital trolling, it's just use the old-fashioned, uh, you know, human factor. Last year alone, we were uh, north of 30,000 uh, hate and terror sites, and plus, of course, with today's uh, emphasis on uh, social networking, these numbers really don't mean much because one message or one song or one visual if it catches on could literally reach uh, hundreds of thousands or even millions of people around the world. So when you prepare this report, then who do you distribute it to? Uh, we distribute it uh, first and foremost to uh, local law enforcement and the media, mm. you know, especially after 9-11 when uh, the Homeland Security was created and uh, I think everybody came to understand that the effort to try to keep America safe would really have to start with uh, an informed uh, and properly trained local police. And uh, when it came to the issue of the uh, Internet, uh, police in general, even the FBI, uh, had a lot of catching up to do because uh, it simply wasn't part of their uh, training in the early years. And, of course, today in 2015, it's the main tool of monitoring what the bad guys are doing and trying to figure out what might yet happen uh, next. So it's law enforcement, it's intelligence, it's the media, but it's also community activists. And uh, we try our best also to um, really inform the general public, to you know, let a family unit, parents know, uh, your kids, uh, I would say, literally are under assault. They're uh, active online. Um, they're impressionable. They're seeing these images and these uh, messages, uh, and of course, teenagers. As soon as you tell them not to do something, it's the first thing they're going to look at. And uh, so, to really sort of give a wake-up call uh, to teachers, uh, to parents, and to the hopefully you know the responsible adult in the room, to at least begin a conversation with young people about what they're going to be seeing online and who they should share it in case they come across something that is threatening, disturbing, or trying to recruit them to a a certain movement. So can the public get access to this report? Uh, We're going to release the 2015 report probably in in mid-March. Of course, it's uh, available um, directly to law enforcement, but the public can get access to it if they just uh, contact us at uh, Wiesenthal.com. And mm-hmm. we'll uh, uh, make that available to members of the public. Uh, we've also begun in the last couple of years uh, to use apps. So we have a special app for police, a password-sensitive one. Right. So they can actually get access to our research in real time, not have to wait a year, or submit a question about an investigation they may have. And more recently, we've created an app for uh, youngsters, uh, because whether we like it or not, our kids are on the front line. 
And we want to give uh, young people an opportunity, if they flag something, to be able, hopefully, to go to a responsible adult uh, in their own life, a parent, hopefully, first, or a teacher, right. but also to be able to send us the links of what they've seen and allow us to then go on to the, uh, usually to the company that may be involved. Uh, in what's that app together. called? Uh, it's uh, called Digital Terrorism uh, and Hate, and uh, you can get access to the information on all of our apps by just going to our website at Wiesenthal.com. Of course, there's no charge for it. And the idea, again, is to simply, you know, empower um, our young people because uh, we'll never be able to eliminate hate in the real world. Mm -hmm. We certainly have done a terrible job at even limiting it in any way uh, online. And so, um, in a sense, we really need to recruit uh, our young people for them to understand uh, what's going to be thrown at them, and especially for their for their parents to know that, uh, you know, we all love the Internet technologies. Right. This is not an anti-technology crusade, quite the contrary. We're all on Twitter and Facebook. But um, right now, especially, uh, for example, with Twitter, uh, pretty much anything goes, and there's some extraordinarily disturbing, even dangerous stuff that's being uh, poured out uh, into social media by way of uh, Twitter uh, throughout the world. I want to ask you about that. How does social media impact the world we live in, in, in terms of inciting hatred? Well, just to give you uh, an example, mm. uh, you know, recently there was um, a stabbing on a, uh, during rush hour on a Tel Aviv bus in which, um, you know, 15, 20 people were stabbed uh, by a Palestinian terrorist. He was eventually uh, uh, captured. But again, within, I would say, a half hour of the end of that incident, you had hashtag, uh, along with accompanying uh, visuals, of support for the terrorists, of celebrating the terrorism. The hashtag starting with the, with the words, I am knife. I don't want to give the full address because, unfortunately, we're still working on getting Twitter uh, to remove it. But whether it was the shootings of the 17 people in Paris or a terrorist attack in the States, or a hate crime, uh, we find that um, those who are associated or behind it or cheerleaders for these uh, evildoers, mm -hmm. uh, they're right up on uh, social networking immediately, and uh, they call these people heroes. They present these terrorists, these criminals, as role models. And that's a message that uh, knows no boundaries. You can have an incident in Tel Aviv impacting on, on a young person uh, in Toronto. Uh, we used to say, right, that all politics was local. And I think now with the Internet, and especially with social networking, everything local is global. It has an immediate potential impact. And Lesson 101, I think, for for the family unit, certainly for law enforcement and everyone else in between the media, is that uh, you, every single terrorist group out there today, a part of their strategy uh, is uh, not only command and control on the, on the act, right. but making sure that you maximize the propaganda value, the recruitment value, the fundraising value of these terrible deeds. And as the uh, uh, authorities in France you know, have found out you can deploy 15,000 police on the ground, 
but that doesn't begin to make a dent in the kinds of attitudes that are leading to young people in their thousands flocking to ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and even those who stay home being encouraged by an idea that's really found its home on the Internet called the Lone Wolf, which basically is uh, it's an idea that goes back well over 100 years ago, but it's the law enforcement and intelligence uh, nightmare. It's basically the uh, terrorists, the extremist groups saying, you know what, don't join us. You don't need to be a card-carrying member of our organization. You can stay home, and we can train you online uh, how to make a bomb, how to create a, uh, a fuse from a cell phone. Uh, and, and we've had in the United States over the last five years, I would say, a, a, a tremendous spike in that kind of behavior. And it's very, very tough for us to both protect the rights of privacy, freedom of expression on the one hand. Right. On the other hand, how do you keep society safe from the potential lone wolf or a couple of people getting together and deciding that they're going to change history? Now, and you, you know, you said something interesting just a few minutes ago. You said that you were gathering some information on this hashtag and then you were going to present it to Twitter. Now, it's interesting. Um, isn't Twitter on top of this and, and, and monitoring it? Don't they have some sort of a ethics and compliance scenario where if they detect something that's uh, insightful and, and, and full of hatred, that they would remove it themselves? Well, Vip, we, the Wiesendahl Center has met with top folks at Twitter now, right. uh, two years running. In fact, we give annual grades uh, to the major companies. Right. And unfortunately... Twitter, which continues to be a, a really powerful runaway uh, success, it's a part of everyone's marketing and communication strategy. Uh, they have not uh, really come to the table of the level of uh, involvement uh, that they need to bring. And to put into context, from the Wiesenthal Center's point of view, um, police alone, uh, Congress alone, uh, human rights groups alone, the consumer alone, and even these or, or these companies alone cannot really degrade uh, the marketing strategies and, and successes of the terrorist groups. It has to be a kind of group effort. So, for example, Facebook has teams of three, uh, three teams of people on three continents mm -hmm. constantly monitoring exactly this kind of activity. They have transparent rules that they've made available to the public. They have a team of people, so when we send them something from Facebook, usually uh, from people in the public who come to us or our own researchers, we will get a quick response. Very often the material will be scrubbed. Uh, the individual may be removed. And most importantly, uh, these companies have ways of making sure that the same individual doesn't come back online by just changing a letter or a word or two to get back on. But I'm still With not Twitter, getting, I'm still not understanding why Twitter's not doing this. I, for the life of me, do not understand it either. They seem in their meeting said, well, we don't automatically uh, bar ISIS from our, um, uh, our product. Facebook does. And when we say, are you monitoring everything ISIS is doing? And we know the answer to that question so far is no. 
So we don't know if it's um, a concern of not wanting to be Big Brother, laziness, or apathy. But Twitter is way too important of a platform for ideas and marketing uh, not to take this uh, seriously. And so we see, because there's such an uneven and relatively lax approach to this issue by Twitter, they remain the weapon of choice for extremists of all types. Not just the pro-terrorists, but that's our main focus, but also hashtags that are you know, anti-black, anti-gay, anti-Semitic. I'm not even talking about the hate speech issue. I think we're focusing on the kinds of activities you know, that represent uh, real threats to real people and to even to entire communities' uh, safety. Uh, Twitter is not yet where it needs to be. So are they, are, they, are, are they in a way, are they indirectly criticizing you, saying that your efforts restrict free speech and free expression? I think um, that's part of it. Mm. And, you know, I, what we say to um, uh, Twitter and all the companies is, look, you're a private money-making entity. You're a company. Right. You have the right to set your own rules and live by them. In fact, we're urging you to do so because we don't want to go uh, to uh, Washington and get more laws that probably will be uh, anyway uh, not really uh, useful online or God forbid you know go to the you know, people going to the United Nations or the European Union uh, or other countries that don't have even the concepts of uh, freedom of speech and handing over to them the keys to our liberty so we would rather have these uh, for most part American uh, homegrown uh, geniuses, these companies that are so successful in leading the field, let them set their rules and let them live by it and, and uh, go beyond what I call, um, I'm sure everybody who's listening has, has had this experience, I call the Wizard of Oz effect, where, it, where you have a complaint and you're set, told, send an email in mm -hmm. brackets and then if we feel like it, we'll respond to you. It's a serious issue. We need Twitter to step to the front of the line instead of sort of shirking its responsibilities by sort of hiding behind free speech. I say that because when we do bundle material and send it to Twitter, right. increasingly they will remove that material. But unfortunately, within three days, sometimes within three hours, the same group, uh, the same person, will have one or multiple uh, uh, Twitter hashtags to continue their work. So this is not something that they can only be reactive to. They need to sort of analyze the issue, perhaps sit down with the other companies like Google, like YouTube, uh, like Facebook, and come up with some standards. Throw a few dollars at it. They have plenty of money. And, and be good citizens. And again, the goal here is not we can't eliminate the hate. Uh, we can't eliminate a terrorist threat, but we need to seriously degrade uh, the marketing uh, successes of groups like ISIS that right. continue, you know, even as we speak. No, I just find it strange because, you know, I mean, the, the moment you, even though it's a private business, but the moment you're dealing with the public at large, you do have a responsibility uh, to be doing it in an ethical manner. Uh, it, it's, it's, I guess it's a bit like a restaurant. Uh, you can serve what you like, but it has to be to a certain standard. Your kitchen has to be maintained to a certain standard. Now, right. you know, you graded 
Twitter with a D, Facebook got a B plus, uh, and YouTube got a D minus. Now, why did YouTube get a D minus? Well, you know, YouTube's very interesting. It was bought out by Google a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with YouTube is not their rules. They have very good written rules. The problem is they're very wobbly on actually following those rules. And what we continue to find and, and continue to try to bring to their attention uh, is that a lot of the how-to, uh, like how to make, uh, how to convert your cell phone into a trigger mechanism, uh, there are scores of these how-tos uh, on YouTube and similar types of things that may not always be posted by a terrorist. It could be by a precocious teenager. But a trigger but for what? Kind... Give me, sorry to interrupt, but give me an example. You said it. you can transform your phone into a trigger, but trigger for what? A bomb? For a bomb, for bomb-making. Uh, or there will be, uh, we've you know, had in the past, um, uh, you know, mixing certain chemicals and then showing uh, what happens when you pour a little bit of that onto a watermelon and, and how it would, you know, blow up immediately. That was uh, something that was wildly popular uh, right after the uh, underwear bomber uh, almost blew up a jet uh, over Detroit. So um, I, I think in terms of uh, uh, YouTube, there are uh, real... I think there is some difficult calls they have to make about what is the kind of material that, okay, let's make sure it's up there so we know what's going on. And on, on the other hand, uh, you know, making sure that you're not just an adjunct uh, to the strategy of, uh, of uh, terrorists. I do know also from previous conversations with uh, people over in the U.K. Uh, and elsewhere that some, some will argue, and I think on a certain level it's a reasonable argument, hey, why don't we... Isn't it better to just have all of this material out there? It's instantaneous. Doesn't that make it easier for Homeland Security or Scotland Yard or uh, the French authorities to know who's doing what and, and to do a better job at pursuing the evildoers? Mm-hmm. Uh, my response to that is uh, that the price of making it um, so easy for the, uh, for the uh, police and others to, to look at it is we've allowed them to, to effectively uh, use all of the uh, social networking uh, subculture to promote their agenda and to promote it effectively. Uh, the reason why there are uh, tens of thousands of followers and sympathizers in place of these terrorist groups in places like France and the UK mm. is because the, the evildoers, they have a goal, they have a marketing strategy, and while you may have a local imam in Paris, maybe the head, the main imam, saying that it's a terrible thing that the uh, people were executed at uh, Charlie's, but when you go online, you have this uh, incredible, almost like a tsunami of, of visual material saying, you know, these people uh, desecrated the prophet's name and they got what they deserved, and uh, these are heroes, the two who were eventually killed uh, by the French authorities, and you should be emulating that they stood up for what we really believe in. Mm-hmm. Very powerful statement, much more powerful, and I'm afraid compelling for many, many young minds. Now, we talked about social media, but taking it a step back, is it more important that we censor the Internet rather than just the social media? Because, okay, if you succeed in, in, in um, clamping down on these sort of 
uh, hate-inspired um, comments on social media. Um, the websites still remain, right? Like the ISIS website? Oh, ab- the- yeah. Go- Absolutely. The, mm. the, the reason we're focusing on social media is because uh, it's like a food chain. Uh, the hashtag will lead you to, very often, a website or a discussion group or an online library of, ter- literally, of chapters of, of terrorism, of how to uh, become a terrorist, how to practice, how to, how to deploy. So the reason why we're focusing so much on the social networking uh, aspect is that seems to be more and more the point of entry for uh, the user, many times the young person, that will quickly bring them you know, to a website or other kinds of... Uh, of internet uh, posting. So it, it's not the only address, but I think it's a, a logical place to start to try to degrade the marketing strategy of the terrorists and their enablers. Now, our a- approach on the websites in the last 20 years has been always uh, in the States to go to the um, company providing uh, the wherewithal for a website to be posted. Um, telling them if they check their own terms of usage. You know that little gray button we all push when we sign on for new services or, um, you know, we say, I agree, and nobody ever reads what's That's underneath right. it. Yep. Uh, I don't either, but we have some <laughs> experts who do. Effectively, when we push that button, we basically signed a contract. And so the Wiesenthal Center has probably got probably well over 10,000 websites thrown off uh, over the years. Uh, by going to the companies and saying, look, these are your rules, we're bringing you the information, please remove it. So when it comes to hate or that kind of posting uh, uh, on the Internet, when you're already talking about a website, we've generally had uh, more success, although the explosion of uh, Internet use over the last 20 years around the globe Mm. is so profound that, um, you know, the... It's a pretty overwhelming activity. So we have a realistic goal, and that is to try to degrade uh, that food chain of hate. And and as good a place as any uh, is to start with social media, but clearly if we can get a website thrown off, uh, even if the social media is off, you know, young people have a, uh, they want to see everything instantaneously. And if part of that food chain disappears, they're going to go look at something else. Now, in your experience and with all the work that the um, Simon Wiesenthal Center has done, do you think, is social media a source of awareness or is social media a source of influence? Because personally, I think it's more about awareness. And I I still think, you know, the average man on the street has a greater level of intelligence than we give him credit for. So, you know, social media, awareness or influence? I think, uh, first and foremost, it's awareness, but it's also invitation uh, to feel a sense of community, Mm. a kind of instantaneous thing where uh, you suddenly see people uh, around the corner and around the world responding and reacting to the same thing that you're seeing or maybe something that you have said or have have, uh, posted. Um, I I think that the... um, the influence comes later. You know, if uh, Twitter is, what, 120 characters, uh, you're not going to win over someone to uh, any movement 
based on 120 characters. But if you can use that as the as the portal or sort of a takeoff, the runway uh, to get uh, a young person, it might take them to a hate game. Mm-hmm. It might just take them to some off-color jokes about uh, minorities, or you know other types of things that teenagers like to know about. Uh, and experience and experiment and know that their parents would be upset if they actually saw it. So um, it, it is, um, I think, the reason why Twitter is so, uh, and, and similar uh, uh, services are so popular with young people, is that gives you that instantaneous link, and then you're, you're in the driver's seat whether or not you want to go to that next step, and that's where uh, you know, the marketing, the message comes in. Well, I think, you know, based on what you've said, I think the annual that the Digital Terror and Hate Report, that must be made available to the public at large. You well, know, it's very, very important to, uh, because parents would like to know, you know, uh, where their children are going and, and, and what's the potential dangers that can come from right. these sort of social media because social media does need to have a social responsibility. Well, Zip, I, I think that's a very crucial point. And, uh, again, I'm a grandparent, so if you needed someone in my family to explain technology, it would probably be my, my grandchildren. But the, the biggest challenge, I think, for parents is, is to do the most difficult thing. It has nothing to do with technology. It's to actually come to your uh, daughter or son and to say, I'm not taking away the car keys and I'm not going to confiscate your computer, but I want you to talk to me. I want you to educate me about what you're seeing. Not going to be any consequence. I'm not going to send you to your room without dinner. But these are conversations that deal with values. Mm -hmm. They deal with hate and racism. By the way, um, I know that you've uh, talked about this issue before. Cyberbullying. You know, uh, any kid growing up, myself included, we all experienced bullying when we were kids. But what's different today with the Internet and social networking and private passwords is that, uh, you know, the victim who's picked out in a class, it's 24-7. Right. There's no escape when you go home. You're going to be scapegoated, you know, online, and, and kids especially are very, very vulnerable there. So there are a lot of related issues, and probably the most important thing that a parent can do with their kids mm-hmm. is actually ask them, let's shut off the computer I'll put away my iPhone for five. Let's just sit around and have a conversation about what you're seeing. This is not to censor, but you need to explain to us. And in many of my experiences, in, especially in the earlier years, and going, let's say, lecturing in high schools or, or uh, mixed groups where you had both teachers and students, inside of 10 minutes, the kids were bored because all the visuals we were presenting, right. they had seen. But the adults in the room were shocked out of their mind because the math teacher had said, well, here are four great websites, and if you don't understand the algebra, you can go there and get some extra help. He had no idea what the young people were actually experiencing online. And that's a gap that needs to be closed. Now, you denounced Twitter for allowing visuals showing the murderous attacks in the Charlie Hebdo case. But looking at it from another perspective, should the world not be allowed to see the horrors that happen so that, you know, the good among us can realize the seriousness and stand up and fight the terror? No, no question. I mean, uh, when, when you get into any kind of government-sponsored censorship, it's usually going to be 
a losing proposition. So our protest wasn't over the posting of the photos of the of the murder scene, mm. but rather the the presentation of the murderers as heroes. The hashtags that are that are created uh, to create instant heroes and role models. It's sort of the virtual equivalent of like T-shirts. Uh, and the question is, who is your hero going to be? Now, that is the kind of, um, uh, I think, behavior and posting. I don't think Twitter went into business to make money off of uh, a terrorist or terrorism. Mm. I don't think the people running it are, are bad folks. But this is way beyond the classic conversations and debates we've always had about the limits of speech. Uh, this is really the area we're talking about and focusing on more and more in our work and also in today's conversation is about the subculture of terrorism. Right. Uh, and the freedom of speech would, is not free. No, it's it's not free. And then I think also all of us uh, certainly understand that in, in the non-Internet world, mm. the answer to hate speech is more speech. That's right. what Americans, left, right, and center, we all believe in that. Now, but the Internet is placed by different rules. Now, with the Charlie Hebdo case, it brought something to light um, that maybe wasn't that much in the news, but there seems to be a Jewish exodus from France. The uh, situation, first of all, France has uh, the largest Jewish community and the most active and successful in Europe uh, since the end of World War II. More than, more than the U.K.? Uh, uh, way more than the U.K. The U.K. is, is now somewhere uh, slightly less than 250,000. So it's more than double. Uh, most of the Jews of France themselves were either born or parents were born and bred in what's called the Maghreb, uh, the North African Arab countries. Right. And, you know, after the Algerian Revolution, uh, the creation of Israel, from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, they came to France, they rebuilt their lives, right. made a tremendous um, uh, contribution. Yeah. Starting around the year 2000, we started experiencing and seeing uh, in Seam communities, meaning where you had mixed populations in Jews uh, and Arabs, uh, you suddenly had attacks on synagogues. You had an increase in hate crimes. The authorities were very, very slow to respond. Can I just ask you a quick uh, question? Uh, these attacks on the synagogues, um, from which community? They came primarily uh, from young, quote-unquote, the young, disaffected um, French Muslim and French Arab population, people who felt estranged from the mainstream of society. Mm -hmm. They were uh, impacted even before 9-11 right. by a lot of uh, corner, you know, street front uh, imams who came from places like, uh, you know, Pakistan. And their message, unfortunately, is the kind of al-Qaeda message that this is what uh, Allah wants you to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first target... The real target always was France, because France is a secular nation. And uh, the initial target, the easy target, were the Jewish neighbors. And uh, authorities, I think, initially said it would either blow over or let them blow off some steam. And uh, there wasn't a great deal of sympathy or even understanding of the nature of the threat. Uh, a few months back, uh, the Wiesenthal Center had a delegation. I was part of it. We met with President Hollande last June mm. at the Elysee Palace. And it was a completely different 
uh, situation. The French establishment, even before the Charlie horrors, understood that um, if they didn't change things, French Jews were going to leave. And that's something that uh, most French uh, officials and people do not want because they understand but you yourself said out of the way they're the target. But you yourself said that they were slow to respond to all the attacks that were happening at the synagogues, and then obviously when you go to meet them, I'm, I'm uh, you know. So here, here's what what's what's changes. First, already in 2014, mm-hmm. over 7,000 Jews uh, moved from France to Israel. 50,000 uh, Jewish families. Um, uh, asked for specific information from the Jewish agency about what's called Aliyah, the possibility of moving to the Jewish state. Right. If, this was before the latest outrage. Right. Uh, you know, as we speak, our offices in Paris, mm-hmm. we have seven armed soldiers in this, uh, in this office building protecting the, the Jewish uh, uh, companies and entities that are there. So, uh, of many, many, multiple thousands of French Jews have already come to the conclusion there's no future for their kids in France. Uh, Does France realize the value of the Jewish community? I mean, what value does the Jewish community bring to France? I think that overall uh, there is an, uh, an appreciation that French Jews have made and continue to make an important contribution in in business and culture Mm. uh, uh, in many, many ways. The one uh, uh, voting bloc that would probably argue with that are the people who support Marine Le Pen uh, from the far right, who is gaining power every day, and for whom they say, well, France should be for the French, and if the Jews uh, are worried about their future, so okay, uh, they should leave. And, of course, the other uh, big uh, question mark mm. is what's going to be with uh, the Muslim and Arab population. Well, can I ask there, you another – can I just interject here? Um, please. The, let's talk about you know, economics here. The Jewish community, are they more economically valuable than the Muslim community? I, I think at this point you'd have to say that they are, although the sheer numbers – of uh, the Muslim population. Mm -hmm. It could be a time when that is eclipsed. And I think it's important to state outright that the majority of uh, French um, uh, uh, citizens who Mm -hmm. came from also the same places, Algeria and all the rest, they are also an integral part of French society. So um, uh, I think that the French elite understand that if French Jews leave, it means France uh, is really in deep trouble. Maybe not so much because there are less Jews around. Some will miss them more than, than, uh, than others. Mm. But because it's a statement that France has failed to protect a minority population, it is in effect uh, been defeated by uh, the Al-Qaeda and ISIS types. That is uh, a profound uh, message that both uh, Halan on the left and mm-hmm. Sarkozy on the right and everybody else in between, especially after the Charlie uh, murders, right. know that it's no longer just about the Jews. How, for every Jew, how many Arabs are there? Oh, uh, there are, uh, well, I think there are probably somewhere north of six million uh, Arabs and Muslims in um, 
maybe more in uh, in France. And how many there Jews? Are, there were about, at the peak, around 700,000 Jews. It's now somewhere at about 500,000 Jews. So roughly about 10 to 1. 10 to 1, and I imagine those numbers, uh, you know, will increase. Uh, but having myself spent a lot of time in France mm. uh, after the murders in, Toul- in Toulouse and uh, and French authorities, the police, the intelligence folks, they're talking a different game. There has been a wake-up call, but it's not clear at the end of the day if they have the wherewithal socially to deal with this issue. Because the question mark, let's say, for our director, Sean Samuels, who's sitting in Paris, is what's going to happen the day after these soldiers leave? You well, I want to know. A I democracy just having soldiers patrolling all the major cities, uh, you know, uh, forever. That's yeah, you can't, have a, you can't have a soldier for every Jew out there. That's going to look ridiculous. Um, but if the French government were listening, what would France look like without a Jew? That's a, a, a really profound question because if, the ans- if France is devoid of Jews, mm. it means that the Jews have left Scandinavia, Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, and probably uh, packing their bags in the UK. So France without Jews means more or less a, a, a Western and Central Europe without Jews. In, in effect, it's the vision of what uh, Adolf Hitler the, that's where I was. That's what I was thinking, yeah. But, I mean, you brought in the UK and Scandinavia, but what, what have they got to do with it? Because they seem fine over there. Uh, not quite. In the United, in the, for example, uh, Malmo, which is the third largest city in uh, Sweden, mm. has been under a travel advisory by the Wiesenthal Center for three years. Uh, there, you have a duly democratically elected government. You have a police. You have mm. prosecutors who will do nothing to protect uh, the 700 uh, Jewish citizens there from incessant intimidation, bullying, uh, insults, and hate crimes. So they France is actually back. doing a better job than Scandinavia. That's correct. And there's one other factor we haven't really spoken about in this conversation. It's the X factor now for all of Europe. And those are the estimated minimally five to 7,000 European citizens who have gone to train mm. in Iraq and Syria and are back in Europe with a, uh, a lethal agenda and with a degree of training that is a complete game changer in each of these countries. But their but their target is the public at large, as opposed to just the Jew himself. That's absolutely correct, and that is one of the things that I think the French have come to uh, understand first, because this has been a festering. Well, this uh, has been 15 years later. This has been 15 years that's, later. Like you said, the first attack was in 2000 on the synagogues. That's it's taken correct. them 15 you know, years. And uh, in those early attacks, when I met with uh, the top cop of uh, France, he said, well, don't you have hate crimes in America? Aren't synagogues attacked in California? Mm. I said, absolutely, synagogues and mosques and the Sikh temples. But there's a difference. In the United States, when, God forbid, there's a hate crime against the house of worship, that place is going to be the safest address for the next two, three years. Every elected official will come. The police will step up. And I said, I'm here to, to complain about multiple attacks of Molotov cocktails uh, on the same address in the course of two or three weeks. That tells me 
that you're not paying any attention to what's going on. You're not taking these incidents seriously at all. And that's why, you know, we're coming to you right now early on to say you need to put an end to this kind of behavior. If you look the other way, it's only going to get worse. And that was before anybody ever heard of uh, ISIS, and it was even before the horrific 9-11 attacks. But Rabbi, tell me quickly, I'm from the UK, I lived there for uh, a while. Um, is there an exodus happening there, because you mentioned the UK? I think there's a quieter uh, exodus. Uh, you know, Jews in the United Kingdom... I've never met a quiet situation. Jewish person. They always do things loud and proud. <laughs> they, are, they are quiet when it comes to the issue, believe it or not, of, especially in the UK, of raising hackles about um, uh, anti-Semitism. Um, I think that uh, the Jews in the UK do mm-hmm. not want to leave. They they feel very British. They are very much at home. Uh, the and in the United Kingdom, Scotland Yard, MO, MI5, right? They've done a stellar job. They know who the bad guys are. Right. What's missing in as an observer from afar is that there is no societal or political commitment on the ground to deal with the uh, growing extremism among the second generation uh, uh, Muslim population. They're, they're just, you know, they, even after the 7-7 attacks in London, mm-hmm. uh, you had, uh, you know, important uh, Muslim uh, leaders saying, well, what do you expect? If you don't change your policy uh, in Iraq or do X, Y, and Z, you can, you can expect more of this, as opposed to saying, you know, this is an outrage and we need to sit down with our young people and make sure uh, that uh, people living in a great democracy uh, like uh, Britain uh, you know, behave uh, appropriately. They gave us a home. They gave us a future. They gave you everything. Right. And that part of the debate, as far as I can see, has not really been uh, engaged in a, uh, in a really serious way. So that debate, it's a raucous one, is well underway in France, much less so in the U.K. And without an across-the-board commitment to, um, you know, to deal with it mm-hmm. and, to, and to tamp down... Uh, the anti-Semitic uh, attitudes as well as actions, you're going to see more and more young uh, people uh, looking to leave. Uh, look, the head of BBC television, a uh, guy by the name of Cohen, uh, you know, made a, uh, a comment just a few weeks before the New Year saying he, he never felt more comfortab- uncomfortable in okay. England as a Jew. And so here's then the me, at the top of his game. Let me ask you this. Why then are the Jews around the world not creating their own version of, say, economic sanctions towards France and other countries as retaliation for this exodus? It's a very good question, but I think it becomes very complicated. Mm-hmm. When you look at President Hollande, who's now the guy in charge, right. you have to ask yourself, is he doing right now more or less the best he can? The answer is, if you were to ask me right now, I think the answer is yes. There are certain policies, there are certain things he's talked about doing. I hope he will do them. But the idea of sort of punishing someone who's now, even though it's late, mm-hmm. now representing a government that's trying uh, to um, uh, make it, uh, you know, make, convince Jews and themselves that Jewish people have a future in that country. Right. So I think there's going to be uh, every attempt to, you know, work with them yeah. and to try to see it succeed. And I think we'll take our cues 
from a, a, a very, I think, overall courageous and well-informed um, uh, French-Jewish uh, leadership. Uh, in other places, like in some of the smaller locations, yeah. like uh, a Sweden or Norway, mm-hmm. that, that's a different situation, I think, where, where a democracy will charge a Jewish community, police will charge a Jewish community to put up the, um, uh, the barriers so that a suicide bombing car won't ram through the Yom Kippur services. It's the same ba- uh, uh, thing every year, and they get charged for it. Right. There hasn't been a single prosecution of a hate crime in, against the Jew in the city for, uh, for decades. Uh, it basically signals an open season on a Jewish community, and even though it's only 700 Jews, mm-hmm. Sweden is an important democracy, and as we said before, in the Internet age, everything local right. is global. Rabbi Cooper, uh, two things I want to take away from this. One is um, I'd love to see the Jewish community around the world stand up and, and retaliate because knowing how powerful and influential they are, I, I think they have the power to shake governments. And second thing, that report needs to be available to the public. And thank you so much for contributing to the show today, sir. And thank you, Viv, for being one of the first uh, leaders uh, on radio to actually sit down and talk about this issue. I think if more people will do so, then maybe the Twitters of the world who depend on uh, the investors and the goodwill of the consumer will wake up and do their job. Great, sir. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account and my Facebook page. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead.